0: Welcome to the conversation, I'm Anna Kasparian and I am super excited about the conversation that I'm about to have with Professor Richard Wolf. Richard Wolf is a professor of economics and he teaches at the University of Massachusetts Amherst and is currently a visiting professor in the graduate program of International Affairs at the New School University in New York. He has written several books, including Understanding Marxism. This is gonna be a huge part of our conversation today. And I just wanna say thank you for joining us today, Professor Wolf.
1: It's my pleasure, glad to be here.
0: So I'm a huge fan of your podcast, Economic Update. It's easy listening, and I think it should be mandatory listening because you do a great job debunking some of the myths out there when it comes to Karl Marx and what he advocated for, what he actually wrote about. And we're gonna do some of that in the interview today. But before we do, I just want to show everyone how wonderfully unapologetic you are for your ideology. And that was definitely demonstrated in your interview with Stuart Varney. Let's take a look.
1: Democracy at work founder and the new school visiting professor Richard Wolf is with us now. She doesn't go, you're the Marxist, right? I am. Happy to be so. In 20, I can't believe it. you actually a Life is changing, it always does.
0: I love that interaction because we live in this country that really does fearmonger quite a bit when it comes to Karl Marx and Marxism, and you are very unapologetic. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about the reason why you identify as a Marxist. Well,
1: you know, it, it took a long time. I, I started out. I like to tell people my first political act. I basically just barely remember it and the New Rochelle, New York subway uh, train station. New Rochelle is a commuter town outside of New York. My father went in and out of the city to work. And I stood there with a little sign, this is gonna give you my age, that said, I like Ike. Mm -hmm. It was a little sign showing support for a Republican candidate for president, Dwight Eisenhower. I didn't understand what I was doing. But it was a sign that I was interested in trying to understand what made the world tick. And I've had that as an interest of mine ever since. And I wanted to understand particularly uh, living around New York City, you would see rich and poor living close to one another. And that attracted me right off the bat. Why did some people have all of this and other people have so little? What, What was that about? Why did that happen? And when I went to became older and went to college and studied, I kept asking that question and I kept asking my professors, explain this to me. And basically, they couldn't. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Many of them were discomforted by the very question. It wasn't so much that they couldn't answer, but they wanted to rule it out as somehow not part of what they were supposed to teach, even though they were sociologists and political scientists and economists and all of that to make a long story short, my dissatisfaction with the answers I got made me begin to have in my brain the beginning of the doubt. Maybe this problem isn't about this or that detail. Maybe there's something bigger going on. What I would now call a systemic problem, a problem of of a whole way of organizing life. And with that question, I found my way pretty quickly to socialism and Marxism because that's where they start. That's what they're interested in and that spoke to my question more effectively than my teachers and my courses in the fancy universities I attended uh, were able to do and once launched in that direction, uh, the capitalist system I've lived in all my life. I was born in Ohio um, has simply confirmed in me and developed in me. The sense that our problems are systemic, they're not gonna be solved by this or that law or regulation. The thing goes deeper than that, which is why the laws and reforms haven't worked the way so many of the sincere pursuers of them had hoped for, I think the problem. Is systemic.
0: So let's talk about the systemic issues. Uh, one of the quotes that you like to say is If you were living with someone as unstable as capitalism is, you would have moved out by now. And I love that quote. Can you just elaborate on it and speak to the instability of capitalism?
1: Yes, it's always been remarkable for me that people would accept this. You know, capitalism is basically thought of as having been born in England in terms of its modern forms. Uh, back in the 17th, 18th century has spread from there to the rest of Western Europe and then around the world to become the dominant system in the world today. Wherever capitalism settled in as the new system, replacing the feudalism that had gone before or the slavery that had gone before, wherever capitalism settled, the following happened. Every four to seven years, as if on on cue, the system crashes. Suddenly, large numbers of people lose their, their jobs. Small and medium sized businesses, and even sometimes big ones, crash. Production is cut back. And we go through a period, can be a few months, can be a few years, of real downtime economically. If it isn't too terrible, we call it a recession. If it's terrible, we call it a depression. Uh, every four to seven years. It's absolutely astonishing. And it is so bad and it has been so scary for the people living through it, that my profession, the economics profession, has literally spent the last 150 years trying, if not longer, trying to understand why it happens in order to stop it, because it is chaotically inefficient. It ruins people's lives. They lose their jobs. They lose their homes. All the things that we know very well because it happened again in 2008, uh, globally this time. So for me, it is a standing criticism of capitalism that it has built into it such a level of instability that 150 years of creative efforts by some of the best minds in the world To understand it and try to control it have been one big fat failure, which is why we are still working our way out of the crash of 2008 while the economics press is telling us that either this year or next, we're gonna have another one.
0: Right, absolutely. Uh, And the boom and bust cycle is an inherent uh, part of capitalism, and we've seen it happen over and over again. So you mentioned slavery, and and I think it is important to talk a little bit about how Karl Marx compared the ramifications of capitalism to slavery, which sounds hyperbolic. But if you really look at the comparisons, I, I think that there are some interesting and irrefutable points made there. So can you elaborate on that a little bit?
1: Sure. Marx was very careful. He did use the phrase wage slaves, and that was an intentional device to get people to think about whether there was some sort of parallelism between a wage worker today and slaves in the past where slavery was dominant. And in the end, when he did his full theoretical work, he found that commonality. And that I think might be of interest uh, to folks watching this evening. Here it is. The slave is an interesting person. He does a lot of work because he's the property or she's the property of the master. Everything the slave produces is given to the master because the master owns the product of the slave just as he owns the slave himself or herself. But the master always or almost always gives some of what the slave has produced back to the slave. So that the slave can eat and sleep and clothe himself or herself in order to be able to continue to be a slave tomorrow. In other words, the way to understand slavery economically is the slave produces everything. A portion of that of what he produces is given back to him. And the remainder, what Karl Marx called the surplus. What the slaves produce over and above what they get back, that's what the master gets. With that in your mind, now follow Marx's logic. In capitalism, it's basically the same thing. The worker produces, uses his or her brains and muscles to produce things, to add value to whatever company hires this person. And here is the relationship Marx focuses us on. Whatever the employer pays you, let's say $20 an hour, that's only going to be a job you're going to get if the following is true. During the hour that you work, your labor has to add to whatever it is your employer sells more than $20 worth of value. Why? Because otherwise there's nothing in it for the employer to hire you. Well, mm-hmm. when the dust settles, when you understand what I just said, Look how similar it is to the slave. The employee, the worker, the salaried wage worker, whatever, is producing more than they get back in the wage, just like the slave produced more than what they got back for their upkeep. So the systems are very parallel. The rules are different. The names we give them are different. But the notion of an economic system in which a minority masters relative to slaves, employers relative to employees. A minority pulls from the majority a value, a quantity of output greater than what is given back to that majority for their own sustenance, and therein lies what Marx called exploitation but a fundamental inequality that creates a minority at the top and all the rest of us looking up.
0: Right. I mean there's still a ruling class. It's just that this has been rebranded and repackaged as something that leads to so-called economic freedom. But how is this economic freedom when the system is specifically systemically flawed and and created in a way that keeps you know the the economic inequities uh, that we're seeing today. Uh, So let's- Constantly
1: reproduce, that's what I mean by systemic. The system reproduces. When you give the surplus to the employer, he then uses it to hire more workers, to get fancier machines, to become even more successful in pulling the profits out of that surplus that his workers produce for him, just the way slaves produce that standard of living we admire in certain southern plantations to this day.
0: So I, I wanna ask you one more question about Marxism. And, and this is really setting the stage for what's happening in, in current events and politics. And I wanna ask for your thoughts on a few presidential candidates. But one final question about Marxism is. The misconception of what Marx wanted or what Marx viewed as solutions to these systemic ills. Because there are some Marxists who have um, interpreted interpreted him, and I think wrongly so, as a supporter of state-sponsored capitalism, right? Where the government controls the means of production, but that's not really anything he's ever written about. Am I correct?
1: Yes, you are. I hasten to add, you know, Marxism spread. Marx died in 1883. That's really only 140 years ago, roughly, um, And his ideas spread across the world to every country on Earth, to people in completely different stages of economic, cultural, political development. Of course, there would be different interpretations of what his writings meant. Just like when Christianity spread across the world, you got different churches with their different readings of the texts, etc., etc. So there are different interpretations of Marx, but mine for sure is one that says, A, Marx never wrote a book about or even an article about the state. He wasn't interested in the state. For him, the state is a creature of the society underneath it. And therefore, the thing to understand, even if you're interested in asking why a state does or doesn't do something, the answer is found in the social conditions and in Marx's view in the economic conditions underneath holding up that state. So for me, what Marx is focused on above all is production. The enterprises, the farms, the factories, the stores, the offices where the work gets done. And there he says lies a relationship, a structure that shapes everything else in society. And that structure, as we've already discussed, is one in which a very small number of people the owners of the business, the board of directors in the corporation, they make all the basic decisions, what to produce, how to produce, where to produce, and what to do with the profits that everybody has helped to produce. Those decisions are made by a tiny group of people. And Marx's argument was in that inequality and in that obviously undemocratic way of organizing production lie the seeds of an undemocratic politics and the seeds of the social problems that good people have been trying to solve for a long time.
0: So let's talk a little bit about proposals coming from Democratic presidential candidates. I was listening to your interview with Michael Brooks on The Michael Brooks Show and you talked about universal basic income, which I think a lot of progressives believe is a progressive policy proposal, but you have objections to it. So let's toss to the video and I wanna get uh, your reaction to uh, UBI and why you have an issue with it. Take a look.
1: It's like how I feel when I see someone on the street with all the homeless we have in New York now, reach into his or her pocket and take some change and give it to them. It's a nice moment, I, I like it. Right. But as a way to deal with this problem, I'm horrified, I I just, I can't get over it.
0: So why are you horrified? Why is universal basic income a bad solution to the economic inequity that we're seeing today?
1: Well, let me be careful here. I'm in favor of things that begin to produce less inequality in our society than we already have. How could you not be? That's what I meant when, of course, I'll give someone who's sitting on the street who needs something, I can give them money out of my pocket that I don't need anywhere near as badly as they do. So I, I'm not against these things. But what I do really mean is they don't solve the problem. Because when you're done giving somebody something, they're still in need and you're still in the position of being able to give or not, as most of our fellow citizens do. Universal basic income is an attempt to deal with something very unfair in our society. And for that, I support it. But as a solution, no. And let me let me explain in a couple of ways. First, if you're going to give income without work to a large number of people who are not structurally part of the economy, you're not going to overcome the split between those who do the work and those who live off the labor of others. And that's a very dangerous relationship, which the whole history of the human race seems to me to have taught us, whether it takes a slave form or a feudal form or a capitalist form. I've always tried to teach my students that when technology makes it possible for less labor to get the same output. That's what I would like to see. I would like to see the new machines requiring less labor be handled as follows. Not in the capitalist way, which is to fire half. Let's suppose you have a machine, it's twice as effective. So you fire half your work, because you don't need them since the machine will remain will make the remaining half twice as productive as they were before. And it's capitalism, so you just fire them and it's their problem. I would like to see a different solution. Bring in the machinery that makes us twice as effective and cut everybody's work day into half. I, it's the exact same result. Mm-hmm. But here's technology helping people have a freer life, which is the majority of workers, versus having a minority get more profit. There it is, there's the systemic problem. I don't want to leave these decisions, these allocations in the hands of the few people, because as they have shown us for time immemorial, if a small number of people control the economy, They will make it work for them long before they make it work for everybody else. If you want an economy that works for all the people, you've got to put all the people in charge. There's no shortcut to that.
0: But how do we accomplish that because this idea of using automation as a way of Freeing up workers' time, you know, not firing them, not cutting their wages, but just freeing up their time so they can live and actually enjoy their lives. It sounds wonderful. I love it. But how do we accomplish that? I mean, certainly we can't do so under this system, but how do no. we accomplish a system where that's even possible?
1: Oh, there I think Marx is extraordinarily helpful to us because he pointed and he didn't do more than point. Because, you know, he lived a life wasn't that long. He did the best he could. He published a lot. But there were a lot of topics he never got to. He even made an outline early in his life. So we can see what he got to and what he didn't. Well, here is what he pointed at. And what I mean by systemic. Imagine if enterprises, factories, offices, stores, and so on, were organized in a fundamentally different, non-capitalist way. And here's what I mean. You can think of it this way, it's a democracy of the workplace. All the people who work in an enterprise, whatever it is, one person, one vote. Whatever they do, they are part of the community that is engaged in production. Mm -hmm. They democratically decide what to produce, how to produce, where to produce, and what to do with the revenue, the product they've all helped to produce. Here's what I can assure you. No way would such an arrangement lead to the Jeffrey Bezos phenomenon. Mm -hmm. It's not going to make one or two or three executives billionaires while everybody else is worried about how they can get their kid through college. That's not going to happen. They're not going to allocate the work. They're not going to allocate the fruits of the labor in, in anything like the inequality we have now. And that's a way of locating in the core of the economy, the kind of human relationships in the daily job that will really make the democracy real. We always wonder in America why people don't vote, why they don't take the democratic process seriously in their political life, in their communities. Well, the answer is very clear from Marxism. You're not gonna get that kind of political behavior because in the daily life at the workplace where everybody who's an adult and able mentally and physically spends most of their life at work Mm -hmm. is a place where democracy has been excluded, where a tiny number of people make all of the decisions and where we all have to live with the results without participating. That's the opposite of democracy. And I think if we had a system that was built in this alternative way, if as a nation we dared even to discuss and debate this rather than pretending there are no alternatives, I think we would take a giant step towards doing something about these problems much more fundamental than the adjustments here and there uh, that people mostly talk about.
0: Well, Professor Wolf, unfortunately, we're running out of time. I have a billion other questions to ask you and I hope that you will return so we can have more conversations on this. But I will ask you one final question. For those who are persuaded, they're convinced. What can we do to push toward this type of system? What kind of action items would you recommend?
1: Well, the first thing would be to make our politics Diverse. You know, we've been struggling for years in this country to make ourselves religiously diverse, ethnically diverse, gender wise diverse, and all the rest. But we are not yet willing or daring enough to make ourselves conceptually diverse. Nancy Pelosi answered a young man's question a few years ago about capitalism and socialism by looking confused and saying, we're all capitalists. (laughs) Exactly. The two parties are different interpretations of how to strengthen, support, and promote capitalism. I have no problem with that. What I do, though, think is a tremendous disservice to America is not to have a political party, either one of them or a new one. That begins to say, there are alternatives, here's what they look like, here's how we might get there, so that there could finally be a conversation in the United States that is broader than how best do we manage capitalism, and opens the question of the diverse systems that actually are out there that we ought to be able to discuss and decide among.
0: Professor Wolf, thank you so much for joining us today, it was an absolute pleasure. And I encourage everyone to check out Economic Update, it's a very great podcast. And I love when you compare some of the industries here in the United States, including the airline industry to how things have been done differently in other countries, in other systems. and. It just, I think, debunks a lot of the misconceptions that people have because of the fear mongering on socialism. Again, thank you for joining us. I really appreciate it.
1: Thank you for the opportunity, and I would be glad to continue it in the future.
0: Thank you. All right. Thanks for watching. We will be back with the post game show.